Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we chatted with a legendary downtown author, revisited public financing, and visited the Museum for Public Housing. All this plus a brand new Size Matters and the Trump Diaries, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for February 15th, 2019. Nancy Clem spoke with Eileen Miles, poet and legendary downtown author of the book Chelsea Girls. Miles discussed her work, her campaign for president, and her 40 years in the performing arts. Spontaneous Vegetation airs the second and fourth Sunday at 5 p.m. Today, my guest in the studio is poet Eileen Miles. Um, do you ever feel the buildup of getting on stage to read or jumping in front of the camera or, or even getting on the air today? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> oh, I mean, I feel like if I don't, I'm dead, you know, because there's nothing worse <laughs> than like feeling like you're about to get in front of an audience and feeling nothing. And then you just get in front of the audience and often that's when you get nervous. So I feel like nervousness is like, I think every performer knows that it's really valuable. And this is a performance we're doing right now, right? Yeah, that's why I was uh, tripping yeah. up so much in my intro to oh. you. <laughs> But that's what was so crazy about your film because it was kind of playful and kind of jumpy and I was trying to follow it and wondering how to, you know, how much do I follow it, track it so carefully or uh-huh. can I just like allow it to go in? Right. And then at the very end when Casper sp- starts speaking, he just j- like drills you in to this like anchor point. And it was a, it was super surprising. Yeah, yeah. That's I'm I'm happy. I'm gl- I'm glad it feels that way because it's sort of like I feel all sorts of self consciousness and anxiety because it's <laughs> simply a road trip with my voice narrating awkwardly. But you did ask, um, was this the first film? And it kind of I mean it's like, I think, I mean I made a really crummy movie in the late seventies with my girlfriend in my apartment in New York, a Super Eight, and we didn't even know when the camera was recording or not, you know, and then we didn't have the money to develop it for like probably a year or two i mean we're just like so pathetic and it you know and it's really bad you know and it, it occurs in chelsea girls as a is a, a like a plot line kind of i mean like we talk about making a film and it's just sort of a junk drunken and then i think in in san diego there were a couple of somebody was doing a um like it was really cool it was like a film anthology on the odyssey and they just invited a bunch of women to take chapters of the odyssey and render it as a film. And I think at that time when I was being a professor in San Diego and I had enough money to buy a video camera at Santa, and so I was just going around shooting randomly and stuff and I got a friend to help me edit it and cobble that into something. But this, I mean, I think that this thing with David, which is, is something that like I'm willing to own in, a, in yeah. a way. And I like the idea of this being the first film and I love my childhood puppets being in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were asking all these questions last night about the puppets and are they, what else do they have to say right now? Um, are they going to do another appearance? And, uh-huh. and it really is. I mean, do you see something else happening in this now that you've gotten it in the bag? You know how to do it. Do you see another one just kind of sliding, it taking birth and yeah. sliding forward? And I think, I mean, probably not involving the puppets, but but definitely involving David. Because the thing is, I mean, like like I said, it's sort of often, I mean, I know what I, I know to write a poem. I know to work on a book, an extended yeah. something that will become a book in three or five years. I know how to, and I write, I know how to write uh, a catalog essay for a visual artist, you know. But it's so like a film or like, like I mentioned a libretto, it's like it's like when somebody says, it's like you saying, be on my show today. I was like, yes, you know, or let's make a film. Okay. And and it really was such a spontaneous thing. And now that I know that 
that actually yielded something. Um, I have two ideas that, that I think would be, re- I haven't even talked to David about them, and I think they will be fun, and they're very different. And, and he, though he said last night at dinner, and he was like, maybe we can do Super 16 next, and just <laughs> stick with the funky, antiquated media, yeah. but just bump it up a bit, which I think is really fun. Because I'm, you know, on the, and on the other hand, I'm working on some, um, you know, I've written screenplays, and I, I got hired to write something, and I'm now a member of the Writers Guild, et cetera, et cetera. So that means I get screeners, you know, which is kind of awesome that you get to see everything. But so I'm I'm interested in that professional way, though I honestly don't know if anything will ever come of it for me in this life, and I kind of don't care. But I'm much more interested <laughs> in this kind of hands-on um, analog creation of a film. You know, that is much more the, the way I operate in the world. You know, which is, you know, in part somebody saying, let's do this and us actually, you know, doing a play in the barn, you know. If you could only eat one dish for the rest of your life, what would it be? That's like so easy. I mean, spaghetti and meatballs. Okay. As we were driving over, there was some place that had a sign. And I was like, yes. Because we went to this (laughs) restaurant last night. It was okay. But I think risotto is always a mistake. You know, you just get this plate that looks like dog food. And it can often... (laughs) can taste really good because they told if there's you all enough the, cheese in there they told yeah. you all the things that were in it and it indeed was tasty but it's just like nothing now i'm kind of off pork this year or perhaps see you're the pig and i love pigs yeah. so much and i feel like don't eat the pig the pig is our friend the pig is intelligent mm-hmm. so it was like there was a very tempting bolognese but it had all the <laughs> veal pig i was like i can't what i wanted i couldn't have and so uh-huh. I went to this. But yeah, always, I mean, as a child, just all my life. And it's so interesting to, if you always order the same thing. You just get this amazing experience all over the world of the same dish coming back in all these different ways. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Another? I, I don't... Yeah. Is, that, is that the narrative? I'll, I'm following it. Whatever uh, you tell me. You want to. No, I'll ask you one of these. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so writers get to create the recreate the world however they see it, or to make new worlds. Is it difficult to share your visions in the moment on camera? Like in this film that you did. Well, huh, that's, I, it, is it difficult? I don't even know what that means in a way. Uh, it's, go ahead, what you I mean, because you kept on talking last night about how you felt like a jerk because you were smiling the whole time. And yeah. I, I really, I mean, I think your smile is great. I really like to see it. You uh-huh. look like you were really happy. Uh-huh. <laughs> you don't look like a jerk. You were like happy. I just think that there are perform. I mean, like it just, there were just many things. One is that there are performers and mm-hmm. actors who know. I mean, I can't. Like, if you take my, I get my picture taken a bunch at this point in my mm-hmm. life, and. Um, but, I mean, A, with age, it's sort of like the pictures look weirder and weirder. It's the pictures that I hated 10 or 20 years ago. I now look at it and I was like, that is cute. You know, <laughs> I did it. We have to get that out. Um, everything, <laughs> obviously certain hot topics are hot. Um, <laughs> everything that happens is, is very is very is very visible you know mm-hmm. and so but and, and i and also i just don't i think maybe when i was younger i don't know if i had a trained smile i just thought i think all of my expressions may have been more delightful were things that felt like normal look when you're a kid it you know like i'm 69 i was just like i mean it looks like harrowing weird you know it's just sort of like i have just a troubled experience with my own face but you know, there it is. What am I going to do? I'm not going to get a facelift. So, um, 
so there's that and I think actors I mean like so so I can't I'm not the person who has their picture taken I can't like make that smile and then when I, I dated a, a person in Hollywood for a year or two and what was really hard was that I would be in these situations with her and she was just uh, it was a world I've always noticed that with performers and actors and people who are in quote show business they just know they yeah the camera gets lifted and they just make the face you know yeah. they can do it I it's mean, like you're... incredible and I can't do that at all on any level and certainly something like the trip I just you know like I was just being me uh-huh. in it and such and so it was just like that was difficult to work with my that lack of whereas in writing I mean part of the thing with writing is that you are in control and it is invisible and uh-huh. so as much as you know like now my career or my writing might be visible it came out of this obscure place it came out of this fact that nobody knows what I'm doing nobody knows that I'm thinking and feeling and copying and and uh-huh. and absorbing you know and so I think film is this other experience but of course the thing that's so great and the thing that's so desirable it is it is what you're absorbing you know I mean I love like the first book I ever read about film was by this guy Andre Bazin I think it's what is cinema and he talked about how film was inherently a death mask you know that it just drapes it's a plastic art it just drapes this thing over reality you know and that's so interesting and I think that's why, I mean, I love to take pictures and why film is so awesome is this, is this constant seizure, this constant apprehension of now, you know. So it's like, so it's the challenge is to be in it. But as a writer, I feel like I feel so exposed. I feel like somebody was sort of pushed out into the hall naked suddenly, you know, and I did it to myself. <laughs> Chuck Mertz spoke with Lavinia Steinford about public financing for infrastructure and the decades-long drive to privatize everything. The dirty secret is that privately funded public works projects cost way more. Steinford explains how attention is finally turning back to the public sector and public banking and why the Green New Deal is capturing so much attention. This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Critical geographer and political activist Lavinia Steinfort wrote the Transnational Institute article, The Power of Public Finance for the Future We Want. Welcome to This is Hell, Lavinia. Hi, Chuck. Thanks. Uh, uh, thanks for having me. The article draws on research she's doing for a, a forthcoming book from the Transnational Institute, which highlights the real-world practices and proposals that can transform our money and finance systems for the 99%. As a researcher at the Transnational Institute, Lavinia is working on public alternatives such as remunicipalization of public finances, a just transition towards energy democracy, and transforming finance for the 99%. You can find out more about the Institute at TNI.org, and you can follow Lavinia on Twitter at L. Steinfort. Uh, what about the New Deal makes you hopeful? You write that it, you write it may not be a new idea, but the speed with which the Green New Deal has gained traction in the U.S. is remarkable. Potential presidential candidates are already embracing the call, and it's firmly on the ground for the new Congress with 40 Democratic members demanding a firm plan be drawn up. What about that makes you hopeful? Because 
every time I have any hope for any new program like, like this, it always gets squashed by either the practicalities of uh, polit- uh, political parties or it gets squashed by, uh, you know, corporate interests. So what makes you so hopeful of this Green New Deal? Um, that's a very good question. Um, I think um, what makes it so special and timely is that this Green New Deal is um, not only fighting climate change, but puts economic and racial justice at the center of transforming um, society. So it's um, going beyond the clear and very important, of course, climate rhetoric, but it's just not enough and it won't work to um, just push for a carbon neutral economy. And it's amazing that they have in their plan to do um, to develop a carbon neutral economy in 10 years, but they combine that with then economic and racial um, uh, equality and justice. So we have to think of the big picture. And I think the Green New Deal is doing that. Um, and besides, it's really being being pushed for by so many thousands of, of young people who have the energy, who are going to do office visits throughout the United States um, so that uh, representatives are embracing this and to push for the actual legislative changes and policies. So I think, yeah, it, it's a new face. And, um, and there's always a risk of it being squashed, but there is so much momentum and there's political momentum where um, over 60 Congress uh, people are embracing it. Um, and not just that, so then the whole youth movement behind it is just impressive. But even, I would think that even if this fails, this is a step in the right direction because this may lead to something else down the line. Nancy Pelosi said in an interview with Politico on Wednesday, uh, she said this about the Green New Deal. It will be one of several or maybe many suggestions that we receive. The Green Dream or whatever they call it, nobody knows what it is, but they're for it, right? She was obviously being very dismissive and condescending of anybody who was supporting the Green New Deal. To what degree do you think the Democratic Party, as it stands today, is ready to embrace a Green New Deal? So I think at the moment it's not about the Democratic Party where the change will come from. The change will come from all those movements that are rising up and that have been fighting for this for for years and that there's a new momentum with new progressive congresswomen and men um, that also um, don't look at the corporate sector, but look at, at public ownership, at democratizing the economy to make this work. So it's, it's not just one piece of the pie. It's really looking at, at transforming the economy on a, on a bigger scale and really putting people um, and ecological concerns at the center of that. So it won't come from, from one resolution, obviously. Um, it's it's a long-term strategy, and we have to get ready so that when the next crisis, the next financial crisis hits us, we are collectively prepared. And that's why the essay, um, The Power of Public Finance for the Future We Want, is, is reclaiming the narrative of money and finance from technocrats and corporations so that we demand the popular decision-making power over how our economies are run. And I think for that reason... The Green New Deal is a step in the right direction, especially because of the people power behind it. You write, what is remarkable is not the new Green Deals uh, or the Green New Deal's uh, popular resonance, but the growing political acknowledgement that the government has the power to create the necessary trillions of dollars to not only address the climate crisis, but also tackle inequality and transform the economy. 
is the growing political acknowledgement that the government has the power to address the climate, uh, the climate and transform the economy, is that only happening on the democratic, liberal, left side of the political spectrum? Or do you think this is also a growing awareness on the right or people who call themselves independents? Is this just a growing acknowledgement that's happening on the left? Or do you think this is happening across the political spectrum? Yes, that there is a necessity of the federal government to take action when we talk about the United States, but also um, for the national government, for example, in the UK to take action. I think there's, there is um, a tide where even on the right, um, you see politicians, um, very conservative politicians saying, these private finance mechanisms, they don't work. And to give an example of that, um, you see, for example, in the UK, that in 2018, Carillion, this massive, the most, the biggest construction company in the UK collapsed, and that a few months after, um, the Tory government, the Conservative government, actually said, we won't go into any new public finance initiatives. And that is massive, that a Conservative government is saying that. Um, when you see that happening in the UK, this is something that's going on on a, on a much broader scale in other countries as well. And, and it takes time, um, but we're getting there, I believe. You're getting there, but let me just ask you really quick. Uh, wh- why is the growing public acknowledgement that the government has the power to address the climate and transform the economy? Why do you think that's happening now? What were the circumstances? What were the causes that led us to suddenly have this pu- public acknowledgement that we do have the power, we do have the money, we do have the resources to address climate change and inequality? Well, the... Um the, the biggest turn was, of course, the global financial crisis of 2007-2008, because after that you saw in, Europe, in, in the European Union, in the U.S., but also in Japan and the United Kingdom, that the central government said we need the central bank to create money, to create trillions of dollars, trillions of euros, to um, push and, and put more money in the economy, because otherwise we will stagnate and we end up in this huge depression. And it became a recession after all. But the fact that the government at that time, and still to some extent, um, is using their democratic powers to create money, but for the wrong results, right? It's um, buying up corporate and government bonds so that it just pushes up um, shareholder prices. This is the wrong dynamic, but it does show that governments have the democratic power to create money, and that money can be created in a way so that it ends up it's being spent into the real economy to pay for our infrastructure, to update that for an energy transition, to rebuild our public services. Um, you see that we can, we can turn that discussion into uh, a public money supply that meets our everyday needs. That was the quantitative quantitative easing that was supposed to uh, that we were told uh, saved us from the worst aspects of the financial collapse in two thousand and eight. That money was immediately created so they could bail out the banks. What does it say to you about uh, the United States, about our government, about our the economic system, when we can find the money to bail out banks, but we can't find the money to address inequality or climate change? It simply says that our uh, politicians are too close to the corporate sector, are, are listening to business, what their interests are, and that they still believe in this trickle-down economics where 
shareholder prices will, and when we push up those shareholder prices and the values of these big multinational companies, that that would uh, result in spending into into the real economy. And that just doesn't happen because everyone who owns shares can just make much more easily money into the financial markets. So we have politicians that still believe that myth, that fairy tale, and we need to show them the evidence that um, points in so many uh, ways to the fact that private finance is just super expensive. So as I wrote in that essay, you see that when public projects are uh, privately financed, like the building of schools, that that is 40% more expensive. And this was a figure put out by the UK Audit Office, so a very mainstream status quo uh, institution. And more and more evidence like that is is showing how um, public-private partnerships, which is a specific um, uh, new phrase to say privatizations of public services, um, how private finance is, is, is extracting um, the wealth and um, yeah, all that we need from public services in the private interest, right? So um, you have a major campaign um, across the United Kingdom which defends uh, the national health system, the NHS, and um, the new Labour uh, uh, Party, they are in favour of renationalizing um, the rail, mail, water and energy. So this is really um, um, putting all the evidence out there that um, we have been... Um, yeah, we have been screwed by, by these um, corporations which have promised us more investment, lower prices, better service quality, and the opposite has been true, right? So luckily, you see the tide turning and, and um, over 835 uh, deprivatizations worldwide in 45 countries, and it, it puts um, economic alternatives back on the agenda that um, communities, workers, politicians on the local level can, can much better provide um, quality public services for all. So these are the, the kind of economic democracies um, I refer to in my essay to show that um, we can, we have them. They are already happening, we, not only in, in, um, across Europe, but also in a, in a state like Kerala, the southwest of India, where you have cooperative social solidarity economies that um, make sure that cooperatives can thrive on a, on a statewide scale. And when we connect that to the narrative of a, of a new politics for money and finance, we can actually transform and, and mobilize um, social majorities. And I think that is what we need also to make something like the Green New Deal work um, and to, to force politicians to live up to, to promises they're making now. Hey, Kyle. Thanks for coming by. I um, I needed to talk to you about my new job and the radio show. New job? Wait, wait a second here. New job? What you gonna be doing? What's well, pretty cool? I'm gonna be reviewing some maps and plans for some guys that I know. It's like um, like building blueprints, mostly like banks. You gonna have those pens with got the chain on it? I sell those under Viaduct. I'll let you know, but the thing is, I'm going to be working a lot of afternoons and nights, yeah. so I'm not going to be able to record but, as many shows. But you're my biographer. How are we going to tell the story of my life? I'm sorry, Kyle. I, I'm just not going to be able to hop a train with you in the middle of the night anymore. I, I have responsibilities. But what about the curse, Jess? You're too young. The what? The curse of size matters. <laughs> it's horrible. Oh, jeez. 
Kyle, you're making this up. Oh, no, 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 no. You see, Jess, you're not the first producer that this show has ever had. I know that. I took over from John. John wasn't my first producer either. Size Matters has had seven producers before you. Seven? Sometimes I lay awake at night and I see little Robbie's face just before... Oh, Jess, it's too painful, Dagger. Uh, the curse is real. I'm begging you, don't do this. I don't know. This sounds suspiciously like some of your old-timey oh, hokum. Oh, jeez. John seemed fine when we saw him, like, two weeks ago. Oh, poor, oh, poor sweet John. Always had my back. Always ready to shave my back. We need to check on him, Jess. Well, if it would put your mind at ease, he lives right around the corner. We can just go see him. Come on. Whoa, this is John's place. Yikes, it looks condemned. I thought he had one of them swanky bachelor pads at that rotating hot tub and fondue thing. He did. Are you sure this is the right address? Yeah, this is South Aberdeen. Funny, this is the only house left here now. A lot of vacant lots. Yeah, and roving packs of wild dogs. And tire fires. Johnny, it's Kyle, your pal Kyle. Johnny! Uh, I guess he's, uh... Oh, door's open. Should we just go in? Oh, what is that ah. smell? Smells like a dump took a dump on another dump. Oh. What's Johnny been eating? <laughs> Look at all this garbage. Are you sure this house isn't abandoned? Oh, Kyle, over here. I think... Oh, John, are you all right? I don't know who the flock you are, but get the flock out. I think he's drunk on giggly juice. Is that Kyle? <laughs> you son of John, a bitch. John, come come down. <laughs> Give me that hand. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. John, John settle down. What, we just came by to see you. What the hell happened here? Ouch. What, what happened? <laughs> what happened? Calm down, bud. I lost everything. <laughs> and it's all Kyle's fault here. <laughs> How? You still got that flashback noise? Oh, yeah. Ah, boy. I had just handed off size matters to Jess. For the first time in years, I felt a huge weight off of my shoulders. No more creepy requests to supervise bathing. No more late-night calls from Eddie asking me to get Kyle out of the basement. I had a new job. I had a new life. Everything was coming up Petrowski. But then, disaster struck. As I was coming home one night, a giant sewer main exploded, destroying most of the houses on my block and leveling my yard. Overnight, I went from being a friendly neighbor to being an outcast, and all because Kyle rerouted Undertown's waste pipes in a scheme to collect burp gas. Oh, yeah, I, uh, I was involved in that. That stench permeated everything. That smell, it's in me. I went from being able to show my face at an office to being a rag boy at the Admiral. Are you drinking gasoline? Yeah, it messes your stomach up a bit, but it gives you a good buzz. Oh, John, this is awful. Being the rag boy is worse Mm. than leprosy. (laughs) You're telling me I lost everything thanks to you. Kyle, we gotta do something. Just like that, I'm out of gas. It's the curse, I tell you, as it claims everyone. Don't even worry about me. Look at me. All we have to do is get you cleaned up and back to work. <laughs> you don't understand. That smell, man, it's everywhere. That smell's never going there. I, I, I am the smell, man. I am stink. Hold on, I got <laughs> an idea here. Ah! <laughs> 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 
I'm almost certain we're not supposed to put people through a car wash. Yeah, it's a good thing Johnny's drunk, or this might probably definitely hurt him. Well, you smell better. Yeah, he does. Freshly simonized. Now, Johnny, here, I got some clothes for you. Try these on. This is a pirate flouncy shirt, and and this is a this is a bra. Did you, Kyle? Did you steal this from the co-pro? Nah, it's a trek, cause they moved out, but I broke into the house and I took a bunch of stuff. And I got you an interview. It's with some old work buddies of mine. It's in radio. Well, yeah, it's in communications. You'll be using a radio. Sure. Uh, it's kind of like a like a surveillance thing. They'll they'll explain it when you get there. Gee, Jess, I can't thank you enough, and and Kyle, I'm sorry I misjudged uh, you. It happens to the best of us, Johnny. You know, I I really do feel like I can get a fresh start. Yes, I'm gonna get on yeah. this bus. Oh, oh, hey, and John. I'm going uh, to bus go stops up at the corner. Just get this be job. careful. <laughs> this is the Speak. first uh, time. Hey, Johnny, you gotta get out of the traffic I'm there, so buddy. Well, really, stuff. you guys are the best friends a guy can. Oh! oh! Yikes! Well, on the bright side, he's moving a little. Curse, huh? Indeed, the curse. Well, I'll see you next week, Kyle. That's my girl. <laughs> this week on the Trump Diaries, unlimited presidential harassment begins to bite. Jeff Bezos accuses the Inquirer of blackmail and hence Trump is behind it. Trump tries to make the world safe for predatory lenders. He caves on the wall. And Trump barely works. At all. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 749, February 7th. Nancy Pelosi said that House Democrats would not be intimidated by what she called Trump's all-out threat to stop investigating his administration. During his State of the Union address, Trump said that, quote, if there's going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. It just doesn't work that way. Pelosi said House members have a congressional responsibility to oversight, and they will exercise it. Meanwhile, the House Intelligence Committee voted to send more than 50 witness interview transcripts from its Russia investigation to Robert Mueller's team. Among those transcripts are testimonies from Donald Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner. In related news, Mueller referred to, quote, uncharged individuals in recent court filings. That language appears to indicate Mueller is planning on indicting more individuals. Chairman Adam Schiff announced the House Intelligence Committee will, quote, investigate any credible allegation into whether Trump's financial interests are driving his decision-making. Schiff said the committee's remit is to investigate, quote, whether any foreign actor has sought to compromise or holds leverage, financial or otherwise, over Donald Trump, his family, his business, or his associates. Trump subsequently complained on Twitter that he's being subjected to, quote, unlimited presidential harassment that, quote, never happened before. Trump claimed there was no reason to open an investigation into whether his decision-making as president is motivated by financial gain. The Senate Judiciary Committee voted along party lines to approve William Barr's nomination to become Attorney General and succeed Acting Attorney General Matt Whitaker. A final vote on Barr's nomination in the full Senate is expected next week. Trump nominated a staunch critic of the World Bank to be the next president of the World Bank. David Malpass, currently the Treasury Undersecretary for International Affairs, is also known for his poor economic forecasting. He missed the 2007 subprime bubble. And the former boyfriend of convicted Russian spy Maria Butina was indicted by a federal grand jury for wire fraud and money laundering. Paul Erickson pled not guilty to charges that allege he used a chain of assisted living homes called Compass Care to run a criminal scheme from 1996 to 2018. 
Day 750, February 8th. Amazon and Washington Post owner Jeff Bezos accused the National Enquirer's publisher of extortion and blackmail by threatening to release embarrassing photos of him in a case he has linked to Trump. In a blog post on Medium, Bezos said that he launched an investigation into how the Enquirer obtained personal text messages for an article published on an affair he was having. The investigation, led by Gavin DeBecker, his personal security consultant, focused on Michael Sanchez, the brother of Bezos' mistress, Lauren Sanchez. Sanchez is also a personal business associate of Roger Stone and Carter Page. Bezos then said that American media's David Pecker demanded he call off his investigators, instructing Bezos to state publicly that he had, quote, no knowledge or basis for suggesting that American media's coverage was politically motivated or influenced by political forces. The Inquirer said they would publish lewd photos of Bezos in the future if, quote, we ever deviate from the lie. Furthermore, Bezos discovered that AIM had been in contact with Saudi financiers, and he suggested the Washington Post reporting about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi may have made him a target of Pecker, writing, quote, an AMI leader advised us that Mr. Pecker is apoplectic about our investigation. For reasons still to be better understood, the Saudi angle seems to have hit a particularly sensitive nerve. Subsequently, Bezos' investigation revealed that his phone may have been hacked by a U.S. government agency and that AIM had communed a war room with the express purpose of getting dirt on Bezos. Why? David Pecker is a close confidant of Trump who has repeatedly tweeted about the Amazon Washington Post because of Bezos' ownership of that paper and what Trump claims is unfair coverage. When the Inquirer broke the Bezos story, Trump tweeted, So sorry to hear the news about Jeff Bozo being taken out by a competitor whose reporting, I understand, is far more accurate than the reporting in his lobbyist newspaper, the Amazon Washington Post. Hopefully the paper will soon be placed in better and more responsible hands. AIM acknowledged that the Inquirer worked with the Trump campaign to kill stories, quote, about the presidential candidate's relationships with women, the former Playboy model Karen McDougal and the porn star Stormy Daniels. And an agreement made with prosecutors stipulated that AMI, quote, shall commit no crimes whatsoever for three years, and that if it did, quote, AMI shall thereafter be subject to prosecution for any federal criminal violation of which this office has knowledge. Meanwhile, Acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker testified to the House Judiciary Committee that he had not spoken to Trump about Mueller's investigation. Whitaker had previously refused to appear until Democrats dropped their threat of subpoena, which they declined to do. Whitaker said that while he had not interfered in any way with the special counsel investigation, he would not discuss, quote, his private conversations with Trump. He also refused to directly answer a question about approving personnel or funding for Mueller's investigation. Robert Mueller's team accused Paul Manafort of lying to them about an extremely sensitive issue in the hopes of increasing his chances for a pardon. Mueller said that Manafort continued to work on Ukrainian political matters well after his first indictment by the special counsel, and that he tried to avoid providing information that could be damaging to Konstantin Kilmanik, a business partner in Ukraine. Kilmanik is closely tied to the KGB. He also attended Trump's inauguration. Day 751, February 9th. Federal prosecutors are now reviewing Jeff Bezos' claim that he's been extorted by AIM, the parent company of the National Enquirer. Those prosecutors have planned a meeting with Bezos' representatives. If American media is found to have broken a law, any law, it would be in violation of a deal cut with federal prosecutors. New York Magazine is reporting that Trump used his inauguration to illegally line his own pockets. Trump's inauguration committee overpaid to use event spaces at the Trump International Hotel in D.C. despite internal objections. The committee was charged a rate of $175,000 per day. An appropriate rate would have been closer to $85,000 per day. Rod Rosenstein said that Trump ordered him to write the memo justifying the firing of James Comey. At the time that memo came out, Sean Spicer denied that Trump had directed Rosenstein to write a justification for firing Comey, saying it was all Rosenstein. 
Rosenstein's statements were revealed by Andrew McCabe, who added that Trump and White House counsel Don McGahn acted like mobsters by, in effect, offering McCabe protection in return for loyalty. And Trump made several anti-abortion comments during the National Prayer Breakfast. He said, quote, all children born and unborn are made in the holy image of God. Every life is sacred and every soul is a precious gift from heaven. Meanwhile, Trump has attended just 17 intelligence briefings over the last 90 days. He also is said to rarely read the intelligence officer's daily briefing. Trump is planning to roll back Obama-era restrictions on payday lenders and vehicle title loans. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau wants to get rid of a rule that requires payday lenders to find out if borrowers can actually afford to pay back the loans. In interesting news, Wilbur Ross owns a payday loan lender that charges a minimum of 9% interest. T-Mobile executives have booked more than 52 nights this year at Trump's D.C. hotel and rooms that cost $2,246 a night. T-Mobile is trying to merge with Sprint and needs presidential approval for that merger. Day 752, February 10th. Negotiations to avoid another partial government shutdown have hit a standstill. Democrats are refusing to fund Trump's wall, but the current impasse is due to a Democratic demand that ICE focus on detaining undocumented immigrants with criminal records instead of using raids without valid reasons. Negotiators had hoped to reach a deal by Monday to give lawmakers enough time to approve that deal. Trump is easing rules on U.S. weapons manufacturers that will allow them to export semi-automatic weapons, flamethrowers, and some grenades. Previously, they needed State Department approval. Instead, they'll only need to get a no-fee license from the Commerce Department. Ivanka Trump says she has zero concerns about any of her loved ones being caught up in Mueller's Russia investigation. She also insisted that the Trump Tower project in Russia is overblown. Day 753, February 11th. In a cryptic court filing, Mueller's lead prosecutors hinted strongly they are continuing to pursue the idea there was collusion between Trump's campaign and Russia. Trump's former campaign manager Paul Manafort and alleged KGB member Konstantin Kilmanek discussed a peace plan following Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Those two continue to remain in contact even after Manafort's indictment. Recognition of Crimea as Russian has been a key policy goal of Vladimir Putin. California's governor has recalled National Guard troops back from the southern border. Gavin Newsom saying the border is not a priority directed National Guardsmen to instead focus on drug trafficking and wildfire prevention. The Senate intelligence can be found, quote, no direct evidence of a conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia. That report was seized on by Trump as proof of his innocence. However, Senate investigators also said they've uncovered facts yet to be made public. And in addition, the direct evidence part of the statement means the Senate did not find a contract between Vladimir Putin and Trump. And more leaked schedules show that Trump spent 50% of his time last week in unstructured executive time. Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney said he expected to catch whoever leaked Trump's schedule to the media and, quote, have a resolution on that this week. Trump subsequently tweeted, when the term executive time is used, I'm generally working, not relaxing. I probably work more hours than any past president. In fact, Trump is believed to use his so-called executive time watching TV and calling friends. Day 754, February 12th. House and Senate negotiators agreed in principle to provide $1.375 billion for fencing and other physical barriers to the Mexican border, part of a broader agreement that would stave off another partial government shutdown without funding Trump's wall. It is only a fraction of the fund Trump shut the government down over last year. Trump said he is unhappy about it, but pointedly declined to say if he would veto it. There's little appetite among Republicans to shut the government down again this week. Meanwhile, the White House is working on a plan to redirect federal dollars to fund Trump's border wall without invoking a national emergency. The current plan is to take money from two Army Corps of Engineers flood control products in Northern California and then take disaster relief funds intended for California wildfire victims and Puerto Rican reconstruction. That move would be of questionable legality. 
The acting chief of the Interior Department is attempting to weaken environmental protections for endangered fish in California. David Bernhardt is making that move because it would benefit former clients of his, California farmers seeking water for irrigation. Senate Republicans are putting renewed pressure on Trump to issue a report determining who is responsible for the murder of Saudi Jamal Khashoggi. A deadline passed on Friday for the White House to officially detail the role Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman played. However, the Trump administration claims it reserves the right to decline that demand despite the Magnitsky Act being legally binding. And a former White House aide, Cliff Sims, is now suing Trump. Trump's campaign organization filed an arbitration claim against Sims, claiming he violated an NDA by writing the tell-all book, Team of Vipers. Sims alleges that Trump is using his campaign as, quote, an illegitimate cutout. That's a legal term. The suit also claims that Trump has been selected when it comes to enforcing NDAs against former staffers. Notably, Sean Spicer and Corey Lewandowski were not sanctioned for their tell-all books. Day 755, February 13th. House Democrats are planning to launch a probe into Trump's connections to Russia. The House Intelligence Committee will lead that effort with the House Financial Services Committee looking at money laundering and the House Foreign Affairs Committee looking into Russian connections. Democrats are also planning to recall previous witnesses who they believe stonewalled committees. A judge has ruled that Paul Manafort lied about his interactions with an alleged Russian intelligence operative. Manafort, who was Trump's campaign chair, was found to have breached a plea deal by making false statements to the special counsel's team, the FBI, and a grand jury about his dealings with KGB agent Konstantin Kilmanek. In related news, a Manafort-linked super PAC failed to report a $1 million contribution received just before the 2016 election. The Rebuilding America Now PAC is also being investigated if it illegally received foreign funds. Trump intends to sign the border security deal and avoid another government shutdown. Trump said he would find other methods for financing his border wall without congressional approval by moving things in around from less important areas. The Senate passed a major public lands conservation bill designating more than one million acres of a wilderness and hundreds of miles of wild rivers for environmental protection and reauthorizing a federal program to pay for those conservation measures. The move is a direct rebuttal to Trump's policies which have sought to strip conservation methods. Trump called for the Tennessee Valley Authority to keep an aging coal plant open. Notably, that plant buys coal from a company chaired by a major donor to Trump's presidential campaign. FEMA's administrator, Brock Long, resigned. Long had been being investigated over his use of government vehicles to travel between D.C. and his home in North Carolina. And Trump complained openly that getting a dog would make him feel, quote, a little phony. The Trumps are the first first family not to have a pet of any kind. The national debt has hit $22 trillion for the first time in U.S. history. The debt has been accelerating since Trump's $1.5 trillion tax cut combined with his increase in military spending. Just 33% of voters support shutting the government down over a border wall. 60% say the government should remain open. Meanwhile, happy Valentine's Day to all of you from all of us at Lumpen Radio. These are the Trump Diaries. The Klonskys chatted with Lisa Yoon Lee and Sonny Fisher of the Museum of Public Housing. Lee and Fisher spoke about their own experiences in public housing, the hidden history of Cabrini-Green, and the legacy of public works today. Hitting Left airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Didn't you grow up in public housing? I grew uh, up in public housing. Sunny? I did, in the Bronx. Yeah, and uh, when you grow up without much means like we did, and to have your, your kid get a doctorate at Harvard, wow, I mean, that was big stuff for... I was proud, but what a proud dad! Yeah, I was proud, but I, you know I wouldn't put have put that on the city's taxpayers. It might come back to bite you someday, you know, when you did that. Uh, and, so anyway, I, before we get into our guests, and I did I did want to just mention that you and I will be busy next uh, Sunday afternoon. We are. Yeah. 
You have a day. Sunday afternoons are my nap day, Fred. Well, you can still nap, but uh, people should go to um, uh, Diana uh, Leiden's uh, Facebook page. Uh, she's running for alderman up against our friend, our dearest friend, Pat O'Connor, new f- chairman of the finance committee, replacing uh, Eddie, uh, Burke. Eddie Burke. And um, so she's running against him, and we're and we're hosting an event for her. But we are, w- but we're not promoting it. We're just suggesting that you go to the Facebook page and check it out. We're hosting Matt it Farmer and, and Steve Doyle will be performing. I was just going to say that's the real draw. Yeah. And uh, so now bring, we can are you going to bring your uke? I, you know, I had thought about it. You think I should? You can bring your uke. I'll bring my harp, and we'll, we'll get it. Oh, you I play, it? play the ukulele too. What? Sunny, play, you play no, uke. Lisa. I play the Lisa. ukulele. Lisa, yeah. Lisa, you and I, we a, a uke band. Yeah. You can harmonize together. That's great. Yeah, right. do it. If you bring yours, I'll bring mine. All right. <laughs> what about Deal. you, Sunny? You, uh, you play any instruments? I'm a great audience member. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll get okay. you a kazoo or something like that. We'll, yeah, I might be able to do. We'll that. harmonize. Uh, <laughs> As you can probably tell, uh, we're we're already kind of harmonizing with our with our guests, Ooh, well studio done. guests this morning. How's that for a segue? Uh, Lisa Yun Lee, good morning. Good morning. Uh, and Sonny Fisher, both. Uh, what you, what would you say? Co-founders uh, of the. Mm, I'm the executive director, so okay. Sonny is the real co-founder. Is a real co-founder. <laughs> yeah. okay. With many public housing residents, um, including Ms. DeVero Beverly, who was a commissioner of public housing, who sort of led the charge around 10 years ago to get this institution started, founded, and established. But there's many stakeholders now in this project. Yeah. Well, how did, how did the whole thing get started? And why is there a museum for public housing? It makes it sound almost like public housing is a, a relic of the, the past. That you, but that, Tell, tell us a little yeah, about the origins. Sure. Yeah, and I'll let Sunny maybe tell about the origins, and then I'll give the sort of apologia defense of why a radical cultural institution is exactly what we need in this time to preserve, protect, and propel housing as a human right. So, Sunny, why don't you go first? And Lisa just fit in our mission statement just beautifully <laughs> there. That's great. I was. Yeah, pull that, cl- pull that close up right pull there. That close yeah, up. Yeah. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. I was the executive director of the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation for a long time, and one of the things that we funded was historic preservation. I had also gone to see the Tenement Museum in New York City and was really moved by it. So that parallel to that, the residents of Abla Homes, led by Ms. Beverly and a couple of other people, decided that they wanted something that would would, um, memorialize where they lived because so much of their history was coming down with, talk the, a, with the buildings. Talk a little bit about, uh, about Abla Homes, where it is and what it is. Sure. Abla Homes is made up of four different developments. It's Adams, Jane Adams, um, Brooks, Le- uh, Loomis, and Abbott. Ms. Beverly was the head. Uh, it, it's on, the, I, I would say, around Jane Adams, for example, is on Taylor Street, and it goes it's right west behind the there. University of Illinois Chicago. Right near campus. the University of Illinois yeah. Chicago campus, it's across the street from St. Ignatius, and yeah. um, it's so it and it, it spreads out. Jane Adams is right along Taylor Street. Well, what's left of Jane Adams, which is just our building, everything else has come down. And Ms. Beverly came to to the foundation to talk to me about the possibility of our of our helping them. 
I got pretty excited about it, partly because of my experience with the Tenement Museum, which, which just blew me away. It was just an amazing, amazing museum, telling the stories of people whose, whose lives had not been worthy of, of interpretation before. And so I got involved, and I said, I, obviously, uh, at the time, the foundation had more capacity than the residents did, and we started helping them to organize and um, created a board. Lisa Lee was the first board member that we, we asked to join us. Yeah, as a director of the Jane Addams Hull House Museum at that time. That's right. And, um, and that was about 11 years ago, and we're still working at it. We've had many exhibits, many, many uh, programs, and now we are working hard to open the building. And I'll let Lisa take it from there. And Lisa, yeah, yeah. Lisa, how did you get involved in this? Yeah, well, I at that time was at the helm of the Jane Addams Hull House Museum, and we were in the process of really opening that space to be a you know space for participatory democracy um, and really exploring this progressive U.S. history and that extraordinary group of women and immigrants that banded together to create, I think, some of the most far-reaching social reforms that we've ever seen. And at that time, they were so savvy about working together to create community through arts and culture, you know, unabashedly, fiercely entering the, you know, uh, field of public policy, even when women didn't have the right to vote yet, right? So this was like in 1889, the history of Jane Addams. And so we were sort of bringing that into the 21st century and thinking about how do we have a public space in a museum that can really be bringing people together to link, be linking the issues of immigration reform, juvenile justice reform, you know, thinking about public education and public arts. So that's sort of my background and experience. And the National Public Housing Museum is sort of like that museum, but like on steroids <laughs> in that way. Um, one, as a historian, I completely believe that in order to solve the biggest contemporary issues that we need to be addressing, you know, we have to be going upstream. And for us, going upstream is actually going back in time. You know, we have to become astute students of history to understand the crisis of housing and how it started in order to be addressing like issues of gentrification and segregation, um, you know, affordable housing and, and education. Too. Yeah, and education. All of this is so linked together. And one of the, I think, issues that progressive politics has, you know, what has happened is that we're operating in silos in, you know, organizing separate from one another. And the museum is exactly this kind of space that we need to bring together the issues to be exploring it together. And like Sunny said, um, the museum is a lot of things. We'll have three restored apartments that will beautifully, you know, tell the story of public housing through the collected oral histories and the artifacts to people who lived in those homes. But we also have a storytelling space that links arts and you know, creativity to um, policy reform. There'll be you know, sort of public spaces for you know, meetings and gatherings, a, a place that links the visitors with advocacy. Um, uh, and so we're excited about this being a 21st century museum that is really committed to social justice and social transformation. <laughs> Sewing Nido rolled into Studio A for a John Daly session, presenting material off their newest release, User Error. This is the title track, User Error, recorded by Ari Shellist.
Finally tonight, the news on everyone's mind, um, or more accurately in the air. This is kind of redundant, but it, it's like the biggest piece of news. So big. It's it's really big. It's been all over. I people can't are, stop talking about people. It. People just I won't talk, stop talking about it. But we have to. It's because it's the news. Sometimes the news is like that. But yes. Those of us who live in Chicago are used to inclement weather, especially in the winter months, you know. But sometimes atmospheric conditions lead to an event of unparalleled danger to those who find themselves without shelter. It's pretty obvious what I'm talking about here. But, of course, I am referring to the elevated aurora activity being projected to happen later through this later this morning through Thursday afternoon. And so, once again textbook stuff while the dangers of you know the aurora are pretty obvious it never hurts to remind yourself just exactly what's at stake when dealing with this eldritch magnetospheric phenomenon yes it's beautiful enchanting really but that's part of the reason it's so dangerous just the faintest glimpse will warm your mind and beckon you out into the open where it will suffuse into you while you diffuse into it dissolving the thin membranes of your body until your very matter is turned into shimmering, iridescent light. Then, following the body, goes the mind, three-dimensional perception forced unwilling into the fourth, bending and groaning at the sheer weight of it all until all at once, like a bomb, there's nothing left of you but a scorch mark and an echoing scream. No level of exposure is safe. No amount of time looking at it is short enough to avoid the dissolution. Nowhere to run if you cannot hide. Board your doors, tape up your windows, sit in the dark, and hope it 
passes you like the tenth plague of Egypt. Hold your loved ones tight and pray. Pray that you didn't forget to cover one crack, one small opening with which the ethereal wood chipper that is Aurora Borealis can find its way. Hey, this is kind of like Bird Box, isn't it? Excuse me? Um, oh, so there's this phenomenon. It's like a Twitter and like a Netflix thing. It's Bird Box where you got to keep your eyes closed in the sky. It's about the sky. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's like a, it's like a, you know, like he's like, he's got his fingers over, over like her eyes and he's like, look at the sky. I don't know what you're talking about, but this isn't bird box. This is real life. All right. And people will die. It's not funny. Just like in bird box. Are we cool yet? 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 The Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>